It's good to see you this morning. Uh, we can say again this morning what we can only say for a few more weeks, which is, uh, would you open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John? And we're coming back to chapter 21 this morning, beginning at verse 15. I'd like us to, to, to start by simply reading the text before we go any further. Uh, we'll read from verse 15 all the way down to verse 17. So uh, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What is going on in this interchange between Jesus and Peter? Last week we described the whole chapter, chapter 21, as being largely made up of three stories. Uh, each of which give us a picture that informs us and prepares us as God's people for the time after Christ ascends into heaven. Uh, Each of them serves that particular purpose in a unique way. All three of these pictures are given to us only by John, but not in Matthew, Mark, Luke. All three of them are very pastoral in their aim. So what about this one? It's a very short story isn't it? But it's full of details that are, that are rich and they're important for us to see. And in the end, uh, I think we'll find that Jesus' point here is actually a very simple one. God is using John as he writes this to us to show us some things about how Jesus shepherds his flock. And we could even say how Jesus is intending to shepherd his flock after he has ascended as he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to use Peter here this morning as an example of Jesus' good shepherding, and he's going to use Peter as an example of Jesus' mediated shepherding. Those are going to be the two main points that we'll consider together this morning. However, before we get to those, there's another point that we're going to start with. So our, our, our three points this morning are a little bit disjointed, but there's a reason for that. We're going to start by looking at the love that Jesus is asking about as he asks Peter this question these three times. And we're going to start there with this idea of love that's in play because there is a misconception about these verses, 15 to 17, that's fairly prevalent. Uh, It it exists even among us. Some some of you have asked me about this text even before we've gotten here uh, in reference to this misconception. For some of you, What I'm about to lay out, it's maybe the first time that you're hearing about this. And so it will be news to you and informative. Hopefully it will help 
all of us to be guarded against misunderstanding something that's happening here. Because you know, if you misunderstand a text, you're going to then be asking the wrong questions. You're going to apply it, perhaps, in, in wrong ways, ways that were not intended. So we begin by just guarding ourselves against a particular misconception here. As Jesus asks Peter this question three times, do you love me? Let me try to explain in, in, in clear terms the misconception. The reason that it exists is because if you, if you look behind the English text here, what you find is that when Jesus asks this question about love three times, you find that there are two different words for love being used here, back and forth. It's two different Greek words that we translate rightly with the word love. I'm going to do this. Okay? There is the word agapao. Maybe you've heard of agape love. It's coming from this verb agapao. That verb means love. And there's another verb called phileo. Think of Philadelphia, right? the city of brotherly love. Uh, both of those verbs mean to love. Uh, and let me lay out for you how these two verbs come into play in these verses. Uh, because this is why it's misconceived as it is. It, here's what happens in, in what we've just read. Jesus asks Peter three times if Peter loves him. And Peter says that he does. Right? All three times. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. All three times when Peter answers, he says, you know that I love you, and he uses that second word, phileo. But the first two times that Jesus asks him the question, he asks if Peter loves him using the first word, agapao. So it goes like this. Jesus says, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He asks him a second time, Peter, do you agapao me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then the third time, it goes like this, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter is grieved and he says, you know that I phileo you. It's, this is what happens. And here's where the misconception comes in. Because it's very tempting to hear that, to realize that, and to get very excited and think, we've just found something here that is significant. Uh, the misconception comes in when we assign a great deal of significance to those two different words being used. And usually, here's how you hear it described. Usually, someone will say that agape love, that first kind, is something like divine love. This is the love that God loves with, as opposed to phileo love, which is the love that humans, it's something of a lesser love. And that in these verses, then, Peter is grieved in verse 17 because Jesus changed his question from do you agape me to do you phileo me. It's like an admission of Peter's less than ideal love. This is how it's described. I bring this up in order to, to suggest to you and try to convince you that that is not the right way to understand this. That's a misunderstanding of what John is doing as he recounts this for us. Can I give you three reasons why I completely disagree with that take on what's happening here? That there's great significance between seeing these two different words used. The first reason is this. It's that Scripture as a whole uses those two verbs for love interchangeably in a great many places. Let me give you several examples. Uh, we read in Proverbs 8.17, God saying to us, I love those who love me. 
Now, in the original Hebrew, Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, right? Even though by Jesus' time, they are almost entirely using the Greek translation of the Hebrew. They're using the Septuagint. In the original Hebrew, uh, the way that that was written down was with just one word for love. I love those who love me, using the same word. But the authors of the Septuagint, the authors of the Greek translation, when they translate that into Greek, they took those two statements of love and they rendered it using these two different verbs. So in the Greek, it goes like this, I agapao those who phileo me. It chooses to take that idea and to say it using two different verbs interchangeably. Now we're going to see even later, that's very commonly the case that for stylistic reasons, an author doesn't want to be repetitive, and so they'll use a synonym when something is being repeated in the same sentence or the same context. Well, that's what's happening there. Now, someone could say, well, that's actually not using them interchangeably. That's actually showing a distinction between agape love and phileo love, because it's God saying, I agapao, those who phileo me. Right? So some could look at that and say, no, here is a distinction between God's love and our love. But that is not the case. It's not what they're doing. They are using them interchangeably. Let me give you some more examples to, to continue to bear that out. In the next example that I'll give you, which is in Genesis, uh, agape love is attributed to Jacob in the way he loves his son. Even, a, even in a context where, again, the two verbs show up and they're used interchangeably. So just listen to this uh, statement in Genesis. This is 37, verses 3 and 4. The word love is going to be used several times. So instead of love, I'm going to read the verb that's used there. All right? This is talking about Jacob and his son Joseph. Um, Jacob is renamed Israel. So in this context, it says Israel instead of Jacob. And here's what we read. Now Israel agapaoed Joseph more than any of his other sons. But when his brothers saw that their father phileoed him more, they hated him. So again, you hear it there. We find those two verbs for love used interchangeably, even in a place where we find agapao used to describe a human being's love for his human son. Right? We're seeing the, the, what we call the semantic range of these words, and we're learning that these two verbs do not mean two utterly different things, and they never can be used interchangeably. That's just not what happens in Scripture. Another example of agapao love, not at all referring to some exclusive, divine, perfect love, is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where we're given the story of a guy named Amnon who violates a woman named Tamar. This is a horrible situation of sin. And there, as it's expressing his love for her that leads to this horrible sin, it speaks of him agapaoing her. So we find that verb used even in reference to a very sinful situation. So that's the first reason to, to not jump to a conclusion about uh, these two words meaning two significantly different things in our passage. It's because Scripture uses them interchangeably. The second reason of these three I want to give you is that John uses them interchangeably. And thinking even of just the Gospel of John, you, you find him using these two words uh, very clearly in the same context in order to avoid repetition. So John is the one who speaks to us about the beloved disciple, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. 
He's referring to himself in the third person. We've talked about that a few times. Well, when he speaks of the beloved disciple in John 20, verse 2, he calls him the phileoed disciple. When he speaks of the beloved disciple in John 13, 23, he speaks of the agapaoed disciple. Talking about the same person, making the same point about him being beloved, but using the two different words. He does it again in reference to God's love, in reference to the Father's love for the Son. In John 3.35, we hear that the Father loves the Son, and it says the Father agapaos the Son. But then in John 5.20, we hear that the Father loves the Son, and it says the Father phileos the Son. There's not a difference of intent behind those two words. He's telling us that the Father loves the Son. And I hope you see the point. These two words are used interchangeably. Now, reason number three, and I'm trying to move past this somewhat quickly because the, what we really need to focus on most are the second and third points this morning. But the third reason is, add to all of that something that we know about John. Uh, I've not brought it up as we've gone through this study, but this is the right time to bring this up. John is actually famous for something as a writer. So have you ever wondered about, for example, how do we, how do we know, how are we so confident historically in the church that certain authors wrote certain books of the Bible, for example. One of the ways that we're so sure about that is that when authors write, they have a style that is unique to them. It's easy to see when Peter is writing or when John is writing because they have very different writing styles. As the Holy Spirit leads men to write scripture, he does not take them over and write in a Holy Spirit language. He works through their personalities, through their styles and preferences. John has a very, very distinct, almost to the point of being odd, quirk about his writing. And it's this. He is famous for constantly varying the vocabulary that he uses as he's writing. Anytime, and I think it's, it may be safe to even say anytime, that he repeats a word or an idea in the same context he finds a way to say it slightly differently, either by using a different word or by using a different form of the word. I mean, it's constant. There was a book written quite some time ago called Studies in the Fourth Gospel. Listen to how that author described this. He said, we must reckon with the fact that John has quite a habit of introducing slight variations. In fact, this happens almost every time he repeats a statement. This is often obscured by English translations which render them identically, but the Greek almost always has some variation. Now, that's why we don't notice it, but again, if this is true, it's actually good that we, in our English translations, don't change the wording, because his point is not to give us a different idea. It's just a stylistic thing that he does. Does that make sense? His point in doing that is not to distinguish and make a point. It's simply him avoiding repetition. Now, that author proceeds then to list out all of the instances in John's gospel where this happens, where a, a word or an expression or even a whole quoted statement is repeated again. Uh, and in, in all of those places, you find a variation the second time. What frustrates me is when he listed them, he bullet pointed them. He didn't number them. So I went through and counted them up. And in John's gospel, the examples he gives, there are over a hundred examples of that happening. Eighteen of them are direct quotes of 
words of Jesus Christ that he then references again and slightly varies the wording that he uses to give it to us. Now, take that and bring it to verses 15 to 17 here. And what we're finding in all of this is that we should not at all be quick to come to uh, these words of shifting between two different words for love and assuming that John wants us to make some strong distinction and wants us to be wrestling with questions of, of that nature. What's happening is Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him. That's what's happening. And see, with, with that potential misconception out of the way, again, for some of you, it wasn't in the way because you didn't know it was there. But for some among us, it was there, and so I want us to be able to set that out of the way. What it does is then it frees us up to notice the really important details going on here, which are things like that Jesus asks Peter if Peter loves him more than these. Well, what does that mean? That's what we need to think about. Things like that Jesus asks him this question three times, and that this threefold questioning is happening around a charcoal fire. And that the only other charcoal fire in John was in chapter 18 when Peter was asked three times if he knew Jesus and he denied him. We're freed up to notice other details then, you see, about how Peter answers Jesus without fixating on, these, on which verb he's choosing to use. And so we can give our attention as well then to the commands that Jesus gives to Peter. And we can wrestle with those and ask questions about those. Those are the places that our attention ought to be. Uh, not on notions of the kind of love that we love Jesus with, whether our love should be more passionate and emotional or more clinical and accurate. None of that is what John is concerned with here. So our last two tasks this morning take up those better kinds of questions that I just uh, rattled off there. So let's go to the second point here to see, our second task in these verses, which is to see Peter as an example of Jesus' good shepherding. Peter is given to us as an example here in this way. Now let me be clear about what I mean there. So one of our sons in his school program, he has a writing class he's going through, writing a number of different types of things, and they are increasingly through the year uh, they're having a list of banned words that are, that's being added to. You may not use these words in your writing. They're weak words. You need to find more descriptive words. The first two words that were banned for him are the words good and bad. Can't use the word good or bad. Find better words than that. And here I've just made a major point of this morning. Peter is an example of Jesus' good shepherding. Right? Um, my, my point there is to draw back to Jesus' own statement about himself. What did he tell us about himself? He said, I am the good shepherd. Peter here provides us an example of Jesus' good shepherd-ing. We see it in an amazing way here. First, consider, consider the way that Jesus words his first question to Peter there, verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Which is to say, Simon, do you love me more than these men love me? What an interesting question for Jesus to ask Peter. What is his intent here? How, 
How, how do we hear Jesus telling one of his disciples to compare his love to that of the disciples around him? Hasn't he been chastising them for competing with each other uh, throughout his ministry and arguing about who's first? Why would Jesus ask this here of Peter? Well, the way we get at that, the answer to that question is by just taking a second to think about the journey that Peter has gone on as he's been following his Lord. You remember these things? Remember he told Jesus in John 13, 37, when Jesus said he was going and he couldn't be followed. You remember Peter said, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And in Matthew, Matthew's gospel adds this little nugget to that account, Matthew 26, 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. This is what Peter said. And of course, Jesus answered him directly in that context, didn't he? Second person, singular, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They're all affirming their love for Jesus, but Peter is self-consciously leading out in this and declaring himself to be leading out in this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it's Peter's zeal, his love for Jesus that pulls his sword out of its sheath and chops off Malchus's ear. We've seen these things, but it has not been very long for us, has it? since we watched Peter discover the limits of his own love for Jesus. It's not been very long since we saw the mocking of a young servant girl be enough to drive Peter to deny even knowing Jesus or being associated with him. And the third time he did that, Luke 22 tells us that Jesus turned and made direct eye contact with Peter. Now, they're on the other side of that darkness. The, the light has dawned, their Lord has risen, the tomb is empty, and here they are now sitting again in fellowship together. But as yet, there has been no response from the Lord about any of that. And now Jesus addresses Peter. And as he does, what, what we're seeing is we're seeing what it looks like for the good shepherd to bring back one of his wandering sheep. What's he like as he acts toward us in this role? Notice the components of the picture that we're seeing here. He, he certainly, deliberately, brings back to Peter's mind his own previous self-confidence, doesn't he? Peter, do you love me more than these? <laughs> What an effect a question like that has now, in this context, after everything that he's gone through. He brings back to his mind his failure to maintain his own faith, even with the setting that this is happening right around that same kind of charcoal fire that Peter sits at, and you can't think that his mind doesn't go back to just a few days before when he sat at a fire like that. Now, of course, what's operating uh, in the background of all of this, all along, is Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, where Jesus 
assured Peter, and he said that he had prayed for Peter's faith not to fail and for him to be strengthened and restored. That is what explains Peter being Peter and not Judas, not running off in worldly sorrow and despair and hanging himself. It is the, the prayer of Jesus Christ that has, that has preserved him. And that's powerful all by itself, isn't it? For us, a little terrifying, but very powerful, very effective for us to remember as we stray from him at seasons in our lives. We know it to be true. If he does not act, if he does not come for us, we will not find our way back to him. If we find our way back to him, it's because he, our good shepherd, has come and has brought us back to him. We are dependent utterly on his protection as our good shepherd. And so by remembering that prayer, we're reminded of that. But then here, he, what he does is he provides Peter an opportunity in light of that threefold denial, three times. I do not know what you're talking about. He gives him the opportunity to give now threefold affirmation of his love for his Savior to match those three denials. Now we can see, as we're told what happens here, getting the question asked of Peter three times. What's that do to Peter? How does, how does he feel as he's asked over and over again if he loves Jesus? Can you tell that the, the experience is upsetting to Peter? We're told that the third time Jesus asks it again, after getting an answer, he's deeply grieved at this. Is Jesus questioning his sincerity? But notice what doing it this way puts on display. He's giving Peter the opportunity to actually display repentance. The pressure of this threefold repetition is revelatory. It exposes what's going on inside of Peter as he responds even to the tense uh, moment here. It reveals what Peter is depending on. Because Peter, in response to this question three times, Peter has not become offended, and he doesn't grow self-righteously angry. He becomes increasingly grieved. And yet all the way through, as he answers Jesus, his reasoning in the way he answers and in how he decides what the answer is, it's based on one thing and one thing only. What does he say every time? Lord, you know. Where is his confidence now? Here is now sitting a man with Jesus whose confidence is not sourced in himself. He's learned that his confidence can't be located there. His confidence is placed solely, then and forever, upon the trust that he is known by his Savior. He knows his Savior because he has been known by his Savior. He loves his Savior because he has been loved by his Savior. Peter's true faith and his genuine love rises to the top, even visually, through these circumstances of being asked three times, how will you respond to this? And as we watch it happening, aren't we learning how our good shepherd shepherds us as well? He's not shepherding Peter in a way that is unique to Peter. He is displaying what a good shepherd is like in the lives of his sheep. We're learning some really important things to be prepared for 
in this life as we walk after our Lord. We're learning that he is not afraid to make us uncomfortable. We're learning that he is not ignorant of our failings. And we're learning that part of his shepherding is often to confront us in our weakness. But we're also learning and watching it here that he, he does not engage us in these ways as someone who is cold and distant. This is how committed he is to keeping us near to him. He brings us through confrontation to grief, to uncomfortable situations. It's a very good reminder of another excellent picture we get in Scripture, that one in Hebrews chapter 12. Would you keep your finger here and just quickly look with me at Hebrews 12, starting at verse 5? Remember what we're told here about this real relational dynamic that we have with our God. Hebrews 12, verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Boy, there's a statement with a whole slew of applications for us, isn't it? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all, which means all of his children, have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live for they, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We'll stop there. The good shepherd has protected his sheep by praying for them by pursuing them. We're seeing all of this in Peter. And he protects his sheep by chastising them. Albeit, isn't it true, with so much more grace and gentleness than we ever find in ourselves. And that good shepherding produces in his children what it produces in Peter here. It produces love. As Peter says, Three times to his Lord, Lord, you know. And the third time, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So Peter is serving for us here as an example of Jesus' good shepherding. Now the next, the third and final task for us to consider this morning is to see how Peter here is an example of Jesus' mediated shepherding. Is this not true? Jesus Christ is the shepherd of us all. He is the shepherd. He is the head of the church. He is the groom. The church is the bride. Every faithful, true local church belongs to him and has him as its shepherd. Hebrews 13, 20 calls Christ the great shepherd of the sheep. That is true pervasively. And yet what we find in his commands to Peter here 
is that the way that he shepherds us is he shepherds us in a mediated way. Notice it in the three commands that he gives to Peter in verses 15 to 17. Each time that Peter affirms his love for Jesus, he receives a command, doesn't he? Verse 15, the command is, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. And verse 17, feed my sheep. Now again, now that you've heard that first qualification we began with this morning, do you hear it here? He's again varying his terminology. Lambs, sheep, lambs. Feed, tend, feed. It's not a different point John is trying to make by use of the word lambs compared to the word sheep. There are some realities, if we wanted to dig in, that we could draw out of lambs versus sheep that might even be helpful to the context, but that's not what John's trying to do. He's varying the word he's using there. Jesus says to Peter, I have placed you in a position to feed my sheep, to tend my sheep. What he's doing in in all three of those commands is he's describing the act of shepherding, isn't he? In fact, that second word he uses there, the word tend, is a word specific to the occupation of a shepherd. Shepherd my sheep. It's the word that's behind our concept of pastor. Pastor is a word that that has a sheep-herding context to it. This is why we refer to, often, to pastors and elders as under-shepherds. Now, Jesus says these things to Peter, who is an apostle, but we know from the testimony of the New Testament that what Christ commands the apostles to do is to go forth and perpetuate this pattern that Jesus is putting in place as he commissions Peter in this way. The apostles go out into the world and they establish churches and they appoint elders in those churches to shepherd in this under-shepherding capacity. We see it all over the place. Uh, One of those is Acts chapter 20. You don't have to turn to these places unless you just like to, but in verse 1 of Acts 20, Peter is about to leave Ephesus and he summons the elders of the church of Ephesus to him and he says this to them in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There is a statement of the existence of a group of called men who are called elders. And there's a statement that those men have been made overseers of that particular flock by the Holy Spirit. This is a divine office, a divine commissioning. Philippians 1, 1, Paul addresses his letter there, quote, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And you have this acknowledgement there of those two church offices, overseers, this is elder, pastor, and the deacons. In the book of Titus, Paul says to one of his protégés, not to Timothy this time, but to Titus, in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. And what's that? What does it look like to put things into order? This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is what Christ has commissioned them to go out and to do. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul names among the gifts given to the church, he names the what he calls the shepherd teachers, using again the word that we 
usually speak of as pastors. I mean, someone has to be trying not to see this reality of an established order of structure in, in the church in order to miss it. And here in John 21, in these verses, we see Christ placing this responsibility, this shepherding responsibility, which is ultimately his, we're seeing him mediate this responsibility by delegating it into the hands of men. So what we see here gives us the chance to reflect on what God has exactly called pastors and elders in a church to be. And I find it helpful, the, the two words that he uses here, again, I, I don't think he's intending a dramatic distinction as he calls Peter to feed and to tend. Nonetheless, those two words can be helpful as we're trying to flesh out the answer to that question. What, is, what will this look like? Because they address it from some slightly different angles. So notice those two words. We have the command to feed. He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Under shepherds in Christ's church are to be about the business of mediating the food that God has prepared and provided to his people. So these apostles, even in the book of Acts, as it's too early for the office of elder as opposed to apostle to be set up, they're, just, they're still in Jerusalem, they're not going out yet. These apostles are serving in Jerusalem in that capacity. Uh, and they say there in Acts 6, 2, uh, as there are some very practical, important needs coming up in the body there in Jerusalem, those men say this, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Maybe you remember that in that context, it's being said in the midst of establishing the office of a deacon. The purpose of this was in order to diligently meet the physical needs in the body while protecting the elders' time and focus to, so that they might focus on the administration of the word, feeding the sheep. How is God's word described to us in the Bible? The teaching of Scripture is milk to us, 1 Peter 2.2. It is meat to us, 1 Corinthians 3.2. It's our bread, Matthew 4.4. 4. We mentioned Paul's protege, Titus, but Timothy, who seems to have been an elder in Ephesus for at least some time and was certainly Paul's representative in a number of churches, Timothy is solemnly charged by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 like this. Preach the word. In season, out of season, you preach the word, Timothy. We find in these kinds of places that the feeding of God's people by the word of God has always been and will always be a central task of those that he appoints to shepherd his people. It's the first command that we see here as he says, feed my sheep. But then we also see the word tend, which I think encompasses feeding, but it goes beyond the call only to feed. So think, for example, of what we saw in John chapter 10. Do you remember in John 10, Jesus, that's where he says, I am the good shepherd. Who does he compare the good shepherd to in that chapter? Do you remember? He compares him with the hired hand who isn't the shepherd, but has just been hired to go take care of them. What's the distinction that he gives? He says, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd doesn't run away when he sees the wolf coming. The shepherd cares for the sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. And he is known by the sheep. 
These are all the things that Jesus says distinguishes the shepherd from just the mere hired hand. The, the shepherding of a pastor, an elder, to the flock among God's people, it's a display of servant leadership that is both centered on and self-consciously dependent upon the word of God. To, to be called to that office is to be called to a capacity of willing self-denial, loving service. Now, if you take all of these components that we're, we're touching on here together and you process them, what comes out the other side is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. Would you look with me there, 1 Peter 5? And we'll end here by noticing where, and remember, this Peter, this one to whom Jesus is saying, if you love me, tend my sheep, feed my flock. We end here by noticing where this Peter goes as he raises the matter of this very commission, this mediated shepherding. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's what he exhorts. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now we see there a fleshing out of the very kind of posture and work that Jesus Christ commands of Peter. When he says to Peter, Peter, if you love me, here's what I'm calling you to do. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. That's fleshed out right there in 1 Peter 5. And Peter then puts those shepherds in their proper context in verse 4 when he compares them to the chief shepherd. Because immediately after this, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What will it look like for you, he says, under shepherds, those who have been called to this particular uh, manifestation of gifts and service? What will it look like for you to be received by the chief, the chief shepherd with praise? Here's what it will look like. It will look like having, verse 2, shepherded the flock of God that was among you in this way. That's what it will look like for you to come before the chief shepherd and to know his pleasure. My friends, this speaks loudly to a church's pastors and elders, doesn't it? It also speaks loudly to those who are not called to the office of church elder. Because so long as we're in a congregational context, this means that it is the calling on faithful members of a church to be careful whom they call to serve as elders and pastors. The whole church is being given here instructions as to who ought to be uh, set apart for this particular role and selfless calling. These are the sorts of places, 1 Peter 5, that we go, aren't they? To know what kind of a man the church should raise up to servant leadership. This is what under-shepherds aspire to, so as to please God and to know his pleasure. But my friends, I, I would have us, if we're going to be fully orbed here and use the opportunity that God's giving us in this, in the text that we're in this morning, I would have us think of this from all sides. If under shepherds please God and are obedient to God, 
through diligent feeding of his sheep and shepherding of his sheep in these ways? If, if that's pleasing in the sight of God, then in that picture, how is it that those sheep please God and are obedient to God? Don't you agree that in that picture, what pleases God is for those sheep to then be responsive to the biblical godly efforts of those shepherds, to attend to the teaching of his word, to interacting with their church in a way that is willing to be led, to be fed, to be protected. It's the very next thing that Peter says there in 1 Peter 5. He, he follows all of that with a commendation of willing submission to the shepherding of those shepherds. Shepherds being willing to lead, even though they will do it imperfectly, and congregants being willing to be led, even though they know it will be done imperfectly, are what he calls there in verse 5, all of us clothing ourselves in humility toward one another. And I think it's a wise word for us today to notice that just as, for example, just as in Ephesians 5, as a wife is called to be submissive to her husband, just as in that context, a wife is not being called to live submissively toward just any man, but to her own husband. In the very same way, Christians are not being told here to put themselves in a posture where they are actively submitting to, seeking the approval of, some shepherd somewhere miles away that they'll never know. God has given us to each other in local context where there's actual relationship going on. There's actual obligation and self-denial that is possible. That's the picture that he's painting for us. It's the picture that he calls us to. It's the picture that pleases him. And in the age of the internet, it's, it's something that we do well to remember and to be cautious of. Now, come back to John 21 as we close this morning. Jesus' question to Peter was this, do you love me? We've seen our Lord on display this morning as the good shepherd, as Peter's good shepherd. My friend, do you, do you need reminding this morning that he is your good shepherd? That you are not a sheep without a shepherd? If you have come to know God personally through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, as your savior, one of the reminders we have here is that you, in fact, belong to him. You are known by him. He loves you. And he is committed to shepherding you all the way to the end. But see, this text this morning doesn't just reassure us in that way. It also reminds us that he is pleased to mediate his loving shepherding of his people through his body, the church, as he has established it. And let's just be honest, that complicates things for us, doesn't it? Because that means, now that this is a mediated shepherding, that means that imperfect human beings are on all sides of this stuff that we're talking about. I mean, remember that even this Peter, who is here commissioned to this shepherding of God's people, even this one, winds up making a grave mistake and injuring the consciences of people in his care and requires another man, Paul, to rebuke him publicly. I mean, his failing in this shepherding is recorded for all time, for all of us to read and know about. He, he failed in this. And that is not the only place where he 
failed, I'm quite sure. No one gets any of this perfectly right. Which means if we're going to submit to this plan of God and to insist that it is good and it is pleasing to him, we're going to have to become what? Humble. In fact, that's exactly what we saw in 1 Peter 5 there, that being willing to trust God for our sanctification is going to mean that we're willing to humble ourselves. He says to the sheep of God in Hebrews 13, 17, submit to your spiritual leaders and seek to do so in a way that doesn't produce groaning in them because that would be of no advantage to you. Why would he even need to add that in there? It's because of this inevitable dynamic that it will not be done perfectly. And yet, he acknowledges that imperfection as he adds there that, remember, they will have to give an account as to how they shepherded. All around, this is a costly endeavor. And it's one that requires all of us to decide whether we trust what God has chosen to do and how he has chosen to do it, whether we trust that he has chosen well when he's chosen to shepherd his sheep in this age until he returns in a mediated way. May we help each other as God has enabled us. May we help one another to live together in anticipation of that day. Being quick to do the kinds of things we're hearing about in our Sunday school uh, lessons these days. Being quick to uh, confront when necessary. Love always. Forgive. Live with one another in humility. Let's close together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see even these particular pictures you're giving us at the very end here of this, this Gospel of John. We see the ways you are preparing us to walk after our Savior as he is not here bodily among us, and yet he continues to love us and to be with us and to shepherd us. God, thank you. First of all, thank you for these, these pictures that you have provided us. Cause us to see them and remember them well. Cause us to draw the conclusions that you intend for us to draw by them. God, we will all readily confess to you that we are weak and we stumble in many ways. We thank you that you know our frame and remember that we are dust. We thank you for all of the ways and times in Scripture when you assure us and comfort us with that knowledge that you are long-suffering, you are full of patience and mercy. You do not grow frustrated and discouraged. You are always, ever, diligently leading your sheep directly into the heavenly presence of your Father. We thank you for that reminder last week that there is not one of those whom you have come to save. There is not one fish that escapes that net. You are mighty. Help us to rest in your might, in your perfect plan, to the end of our days. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.